welcome to A Beautiful Faith, where we give voice to all that makes faith beautiful. Thanks for joining us, and Henry and I are excited to continue our series called The Return. And now, normally, The Return uh, will be kind of sporadically placed throughout. It's just whenever we feature someone's journey back to faith or returning to faith, um, this will be a uh, this will be when we title that. But for us, we wanted to start off with you kind of hearing our reconstructive journeys and and what that looked like. And so uh, last episode, you heard my story. You heard me talk for, for way too long. So thank you for struggling through that and, and, and toughing it out. And today you get the wonderful opportunity to hear Henry talk for the majority of the episode. Um, and so the, consider that your warning. Um, yes, that means this isn't the Return of the King or Return of the Jedi. It's more like a bad Disney Star Wars sequel. Yes, exactly. Um, we're past the originals, so this is uh, this is this is like if you took all the worst parts of Episode Seven or Episode Three and all the worst parts of Episode Eight of Star Wars. Right, so the prequel and the Disney sequel. Oh, and gosh. I want to say all the worst parts of both those movies, but really, what I mean is, if you just watch those movies back to back, you'll have. We're gonna get what Henry's story is today. Oh mercy! No, um, I Misa, the Lord of the Sea. Well, that ruined my day. Um, <laughs> so this is cool because Henry, your story is so much more different than mine, and like it's 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 kind of nowhere. There's, there is a, there is one small similarity, which I think we'll get to, but in general, I think that the majority of your story is so different that it really does affirm kind of what we're doing here in that you have come at this entire thing with a completely different perspective. And I think that's valuable because I, I, I think that, you know, my experience and my perspectives can only serve a, a, a certain kind of situation and yours the same. And so I'm glad that our, our net gets cast wider now. Yeah. And that, and that brings up a kind of side point of a pet peeve I've had often with the way that we view personal stories or what often in religious language we call testimonies. I think in the West, and as far as Western Christianity, we've kind of tended to overemphasize a very certain subset of quote testimonies or personal journeys we tend to prioritize like the sensational or the ones that kind of meet what we call maybe a, a Hollywood-esque test. So yeah. they had to have, you know, guns and gangs and loose living and and all these kind of things. And we almost over-prioritize this to the point where people think they don't have a valid religious experience unless something really wacky, wild, or out there crazy happens in their life. And I think the majority of experiences, while obviously to the one going through it, it could feel crazy, wacky, sensational, and whatnot. I think there's a lot more truth in the subtlety of life and a, and a lot more experiences that probably, especially for people that are in religion or have grown up in religion, you know, it's, it's hard to relate to some of those stories. Yeah. Uh, but it's a lot easier to relate to the idea that the majority of people, they either grow up, or especially in the West, uh, they grow up around religion or have had some sort of experience with it, and they have to wrestle within that context. But, you know, they might not have just left and said, everything can burn, and then come back to it after some sort of, like, life-or-death situation. And I think that's really a shame that we've over-prioritized that, because I think it makes people think that their religious experience doesn't count, or they haven't had a real one. And, and that's really a shame, because I, I, I think we need to hear all of those stories. Yeah, I think... 
I get that we've wanted to show people that God's, I think it's, I think it's born out of some desperation to still prove that God works big miracles, you know, the big miracles we see in the Bible. And so we, we want the sensational because that somehow gives us a little bit more um, confirmation that what happened in the Bible is real. And what ends up happening is we lose the beauty of the ordinary and, and kind of the everyday life. And that's why I'm grateful for books of the Bible, like Ruth that very much do show what kind of life looks like from the perspective of those just simply living it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm excited about this because while yes, you have some extraordinary things that happen to you, I think overall the kind of process and steps are going to show us a little bit of a different story than what we're used to. And I'm excited about that. Yeah. So I mean, it's exciting to look at kind of the, the more normal and kind of as a side note, I just, just thinking while you were saying, I think it's not only a desire to somehow prove that God still does big things, but the irony of it is I think it actually, the way we tend to prioritize certain testimonies, it's actually an ego trip and has less to do with God than us. In other words, the emphasis on the story is not God and his goodness or what he's done in my life. It's actually in the goodness of what I have, quote, given up for the Lord. Because mm. oftentimes, if you think about it, the testimonies tend to be heavy on all the stuff they did. And, and very the light like, on what Jesus actually right. did. Right, and then they're them. like, but I gave it all up for Jesus or something like that. You know, I kind of sound a little televangelist there. But, but, but the point is, when I, I tend to deconstruct them later, if you don't know what deconstruction is, go back later and listen to earlier episodes. The, the point is, it, it really is more of an emphasis on look at all of the, look how good I am now because of all the stuff. I did all this cool stuff, but I gave it all up for God. And it's almost, to me, sounds like they're, they're saying that they had more fun or a better experience outside, but now look at their great morality because they've given it up for him. It's not what God did for them. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's fair. And while I do think some testimonies or some stories only have a little bit of God tech on the end is it's sometimes because of how recently they may have come out of, you know, 12 years of, of this terrible thing. And then they've had a year of Christianity. Yeah. And so there is just naturally more to talk about, but at the same time, I agree with you in that I do think we glorify all these other things. And I think it's kind of our way of still getting the high of, you know, air quotes there, but the high of the old life um, in having given it up for the new right? Talk about how much money I made or talk about all these things. And I get this excitement in me. And then, um, and then at the end, I still get a pat on the back. Yeah. Or else it's a, it's a way to self-medicate some lingering guilt maybe from Mm -hmm. that past. So yeah, I think there's a lot of that. And, um, you know, I don't want to trash someone's story that is extraordinary either. I think God is just as present in those stories, but I do think that, yeah, the way the church has, the way church has handled those stories is really, I think where our concern has been. Um, so Henry, Let's dive into your story. Um, and I guess let's start with kind of your background and how you grew up and, and kind of what that looked like. Well, the easiest way to put this kind of a, a phrase I've coined is I grew up what I like to call Advabaptist. And if you try and Google that term, it doesn't exist. Not that I know of. Maybe someone has, and I subconsciously picked it up somewhere. But by that, I mean my father was a Southern Baptist and my mother was a Seventh-day Adventist which the joke I like to say if I'm talking to either one of those particular faith communities is that by the time I was in high school, I was equally scared of hellfire and the judgment. I wasn't quite sure what to be terrified of. Mm. And uh, which sounds horrible. I mean, I had positives out of both experiences. But, but so really, I, I kind of came from a split home as far as denominational 
separation. Not like one was Christian, one was Buddhist, and one was Muslim, and one was, you know, I, I, it wasn't quite that crazy a gulf um, between it, but it, it definitely was mixed views yeah. uh, on a host of different issues. And, and it actually caused a lot of family drama. I'm sure there's nobody that could relate to that kind of statement. <laughs> uh, I mean, and, and family drama in as much as, you know, I was born in the 80s, and that is a, I mean, that sounds really old, but it's not, to, to the point where my, my father and his side of the family, they lived in a very small town in the Deep South, and my mother already had something working against her in the sense that she was from the North. She was a Yankee, quote unquote, because my mother grew up in Maine, about as far north in Maine as you can go and beyond the Canadian border. And so all this deep Southern family that my father was born into could think was she was a Yankee and she must be a cult member because she was part of this weird sect of Christianity that went to church on a weird day and heaven forbid didn't eat pork. So, you know, but she's not a Jew. So like, what's, what's her <laughs> point? And so that just created a lot of family drama, obviously. And I love my grandparents to death. I get they were, they were wrestling with that. So, so there's a mixed family background, a mixed theological background, and a background that in that mix created drama for a host of different things that, you know, aren't necessarily relevant to the story per se. But I grew up there, and so a lot of times I went to church twice a weekend and twice during the week. So you mm. could almost say I was really sick of church by the time I, I get closer to high school, which is a time that I, I, I have more memories of for sure. Uh, my father did convert uh, to Seventh-day Adventism uh, pretty early on in my life. Uh, he always attended church. I'll give him credit for that. He always attended church with, with us uh, at, the, at the Adventist church in addition to, to going anywhere else. Uh, part of that lies in their story. My dad didn't really know anything about Seventh-day Adventism. He met my mother, who was a traveling temp nurse, and my dad was working as an EMT at the time, paying his way through Georgia Tech there where he was. Well, that kind of gives away partly maybe the state that I grew up in. But in, mm. in that case... Uh, he met her, and he was determined to go on a date with her. And as I was told, because I obviously didn't exist at the time, uh, he went and waited around the ER and asked her out on a date for like a Friday night, and she said no. And he <laughs> said, well, what about something on a set, like a picnic on Saturday or whatever? And she went, no. And so he pretty much figured it was, you Wait, know, a picnic on Saturday was a no? Uh, well, okay, earlier time. It, yeah, it's an earlier time. Earlier that, time. That, that, that's a yep. little bit of some unique cultural stuff for denominational for, history that doesn't really matter yes, to the story. Correct. I was just like, wait a minute, but yes, yeah, you're right. But, yeah. But anyway, and so he just figured it was complete rejection. And, you know, my mother, I, I don't know if she was that interested or not, but I guess like many people do, she felt sorry. She didn't want, she wanted to let him down easy. So she kind of excused it by going, well, no, 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 it, it, it's not you. It's just that I go to church on Saturday. And my dad knowing nothing at all about Adventism just was so desperate to do something. I'll give him credit, you know, props dad, if you're listening, uh, <laughs> he, he, he basically was just like, well, can I go to church with you? He was just desperate to do anything with her. And my mom kind of had the philosophy, well, you can't say no to someone wanting to come to church with you. Flirt to convert, yeah, baby. Flirt to convert, flirt baby. To convert. And, uh, which I hashtag, I don't recommend. So as he then proceeds to endorse it via story. Yeah, proceeds a story where it actually did work. Um, that's a whole different topic for another time. But anyway, and he's just attended church ever since. That's what my mom said. He never missed a Saturday after that. Um, and they got they got married, though, pretty quick. That's their story more so than mine. They were married three months to the day from when they met. I don't recommend that either. But, but in every case, uh, that's where I come along two years later. And 
and and so that was kind of my upbringing, as I said. But he he converted later, and as long as we still lived in that little town, I went to church pretty regularly. As I said, at least four times a week: two at one church, two at the other, and you know a whole bunch of things around that. All until about time for high school, at which point, through a series of some of the family drama, we ended up moving from that town. And this really feeds into my story. I'd grown up in the same town in basically the same house for the first 14 years of my life. And maybe nowadays that's not as relatable because I know a lot more moving happens nowadays. But for me, I'd grown up in the same town. It was a little town. Everybody knew everybody. Or most everybody knew everybody in some way, shape, or form or knew somebody in your family kind of thing. And then we were uprooted, moved states. And right about the time of high school, when you're already trying as a young man to figure things out about your life and whatnot. And so I was uprooted and thrown into a a new environment. And on top of that, since it was about time, we moved about time I was in eighth grade. So it was just right before before high school. I remember we moved to this town and the only thing that was there was a non-denominational Christian school, hashtag Southern Baptist, which was kind of the code they used. And I got enrolled there and... The only thing I really remember about that school was that shortly after I was there, my mother, I like to read, and my mother had sent me a book, I guess her subtle way of trying to make sure I, which faith I would choose. When I grew up, she sent me this book about why, the book was something about why Saturday is really, you know, more biblical than Sunday worship or something Mm. like that. And I, I pulled it out of my backpack during a lunch hour to read, and one of the students saw me reading and asked what I was reading. And when I handed the book to them for them to see, the school had like a non-proselytizing rule or whatever, which is a fancy Mm -hmm. word for saying you don't try and convert other people or share your particular beliefs on the other one because it's all supposed to be everybody's welcome kind of thing. And a teacher saw that, and I don't know if she had a particular agenda against me or was just upset that day or, or whatever, but she immediately went and reported to the principal that I was trying to convert people in the lunchroom to a particular oh, faith. Oh, no. And, and I got drugged to the principal's office, and they were going to suspend me. And literally, so they called my mother to come get me. And the only memory I have of this is that my mom showed up at the school. And she, all I remember is I was sitting there waiting to feel like I'm in trouble. My mom's going to turn me over to my dad, and I'm going to get a whooping or something like that. And instead, when my mom barged, I really feel that's the appropriate word, barged through the door, In there, she ignored me, went right past me, right past the secretary, straight into the principal's office, slammed the door, and I could hear her yelling at him through the door, and I don't know what was said, but I was not suspended. (laughs) Jeez. (laughs) Mama bears unite. Yikes. Um, Anyway, so that was just another moment where I remember feeling isolated and kind of alienated because I wasn't sure where I fit or what I particularly believed personally. I didn't really have to make that choice in, until high school. And so by the time we got to high school, my mom, probably judging off of situ, you know, events like this that happened at the non-denominational school, was determined I would go to an Adventist boarding school. Yeah. An, an academy is what, what they called it in North Carolina, interestingly enough, Mount Pisgah Academy. It was in the Asheville area. And so next thing I know, I'm carted off to go live with a whole bunch of other people in a dorm mm. shortly after I've moved away from everything and I'm nobody. And I got dropped there. And as I said, in light of all of these things I was wrestling with, high school is really the moment where I think a lot of things set in motion a a path I would have to struggle with. And that was a a fear of not only not fitting in, which I think a lot of people struggle with, but I had a fear for some reason of failing to meet people's expectations of what I should or should not be. 
Uh, I'm not, there's probably a million different reasons why that developed. You know, some of that gets a little psychological, you know, things, whereas my parents were both busy and I know they loved me and they spent a lot of time and effort working themselves to death to be able to afford things for us or to send us to good schools or to do things like that. Uh, You know, I, I was far from, you know, the old joke they say in the South is there's poor and there's Poe. And we were definitely not Poe, and we definitely weren't poor, <laughs> but I wouldn't say we were upper middle class. You know, I, yeah. I, I never went without food, though, and I usually had, you know, a Lego set or something that I didn't need. So I, I was by far from poor off, you know, so to speak, not well off. But I think because they worked so hard, it was kind of that tendency that if things were going great, they just kind of kept doing their thing. It was only when you did something wrong that effort would be expended to sit you down and talk to you about it or whatever not. And so for some reason, I guess in my young mind, and I'm sure this was not my parents' you know, intention, I started prioritizing the feeling that whenever I was talked to by these people, I was doing something wrong. I was failing an expectation. I was, I was not living up to something. And for whatever reason, that just developed to the point where by the time I got to high school and so much was different and so much was, was going on that I got plopped into the already crazy environment that a high school can be where you're just dropped in with a whole bunch of your peers that are trying to figure out their own lives anyway. And I, and I really got caught up with a group of people that kind of very quickly took a look at me and decided I was not up to snuff, Mm. so to speak, because I I still remember the first day of school because I showed up. This is going to be embarrassing to talk about. I, I still remember what I was wearing only because about five different kids made fun of it. I was in a pair of white Nike tennis shoes. And the reason why I was in Nike tennis shoes, that sounds cool, but you have to understand at that point, my mom, I had size 12 feet already at 14. And for whatever reason, my mom had come to the conclusion that Nike was the only company that made size 12 shoes Uh, at that point, or had been at whatever point she started buying Nikes for me. So I had these jumbo Nike shoes. I had a really kind of tight pair of those, and not like form-fitting like the style nowadays. I'm just talking about tight, those bleached, almost light blue, blue jeans. Oh, yeah, You know what I'm talking about? Yep. yep. I, I had that. I had a Riverbanks Zoo t-shirt with a red panda on it. You're doing well so far for yourself. <laughs> I am really setting you're, like the, You're blending right into high school. I'm blending right into high school, and I had the Coke bottle glasses. And I had a number four buzz cut all the way over. It looked like I was a kid that wanted to be in the military, but wasn't. Okay, to be fair, except for the buzz cut, if that red if that Red Bank Zoo shirt was a XL or a large, one that kind of hung looser on it, you. It hung looser. It did hung looser. Yes. Yeah, then you fit right in today. You would fit right in today. I fit in today, but in the early late nineties, early two thousands, no, this not is a not a good not a good fit. No, although when I look back at pictures of that time period, because I can still remember by my junior year of high school, do you remember the style? where you would wear t-shirt jeans and an, a collared shirt unbuttoned just hanging loosely over the t-shirt. Yeah. You remember that? Sometimes yeah. you didn't wear shorts with that getup. Yeah. I look at pictures and I'm embarrassed. Like, <laughs> I'm like, how was that a style? Anyway, my, my point of all of that, that side tangent was, is there was immediately a group of my peers that said I didn't live up to expectations. That wasn't cool. Mm. That wasn't whatever. And I had a couple well-meaning people, I'm sure they meant well in their own mind, that were going to take it upon themselves to help Fix me. Yeah. Right. So they tell you, you got to lose the glasses. You got to start wearing contacts. You, you need to stop dressing this. You need to go buy, you know, American Eagle or Banana Republic or 
or whatever. You need to do this, and you need to let your hair do this, or whatever. And so I, I kind of very early on, at a weak moment in my life, became obsessed with the idea that I had to become whatever somebody expected me to be, mm. to be of value. And that led me to do a lot of really dumb things. I mean, I went to some really stupid extremes that I'm almost really embarrassed to even think on in life. I would literally try to do anything to get people to, to like me. I remember one year, I think it was my sophomore year, in academy, I literally thought that, you know, I was a, I was a dweeb, I was a nerd. And so women didn't really pay me much attention. And I thought the way I would get a girlfriend, I don't know where I got this idea, but was that they like people with accents like British or Australian accents or whatever. Mm. And so I literally, and this was before you could just go online and watch YouTube videos all day to figure stuff out. I, I, I wrestled to find something that had some sort of cool accent I could listen to over and over again. And it happened to be an Australian one at that time. I'd never been to Australia. Uh, I didn't really know anything else. Probably Crocodile Dundee was the only thing I knew from the nineties about like, yeah. you know, good all I might or whatever. And I spent a ton of time trying to figure out how to speak in an Australian accent and then started going around saying I was from Australia. Now, of course, <laughs> what's really stupid is I already been at that school a year speaking like a good redneck. And now all of a sudden I did a flip back, yeah. with this accent. And all of a sudden I'm like, Yikes. I'm from Australia. My, you know, uh, so it's so stupid, Yikes. You know, which is really a testament to, we will be really stupid in efforts to try and assuage pains and things in our lives. And, and you kind of psych yourself out. You don't even realize how dumb it is till later. It yep. just seems like it makes sense to you. In fact, I can remember I did that for probably an entire semester until I got in trouble academically for that because of all ironies, I remember there was an English composition class we were taking and one of the assignments was you had to write a research paper on a particular country and, you know, present it to the class. Yeah. And of all ironies, I got Australia. And so I got up and started presenting on it, speaking like this or whatever. And this teacher, I guess, you know, I hadn't had him freshman year. I made up this whole backstory. I mean, I had this whole thing where we lived in Australia and moved because of my dad's work and stuff like this. And apparently she was so impressed with my presentation that after the class, she went to look up my parents' contact information to call and brag about my presentation to my parents. And my dad, of all ironies, picked up the phone and he's about as redneck as they come. Okay. So he picks up the phone like, was a, you know, howdy yeah. all. Kind of thing. And very quickly, she realizes he's never been to Australia. He's definitely not from Australia. This whole story is a bunch of lies. Oh, and no. I get pulled out of the dorm and taken to ad council. And I got academic in-school suspension and failed the presentation for academic dishonesty. Okay. Uh, you know, and yeah. anyway, it's... Yeah. Which probably I feel the, like that's slight overkill, but I feel like that's both slight overkill and a failure to understand any of what's going on there well, but okay I, yeah yeah well i definitely didn't understand what was going on yet either but so the whole point of that is i i was i was getting stuck in a cycle where i was willing to do anything and everything to try and be a value to fit in or to have people like me either be the center of attention you know that you start using humor kind of as a coping mechanism as a coping mechanism yep. because if people are going to laugh at me at least maybe i can laugh with them i can control what the joke is which, which really makes me feel for a lot of modern comedians because I, 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 you know, especially how many years has it been now? Almost four or five since Robin Williams committed suicide. Mm. Uh, you know, people like this, you, you start realizing a lot of comedians suffer from depression, a yeah. lot of self-value issues. And, and I, I can't say that's the same for all of them. I don't know every comedian or their stories. 
But I definitely know I turn to a lot of comedy as a coping mechanism for my insecurities and whatnot. So that that was really my high school years was just going on overkill to the point where I would make up stories. I would basically get really good at lying and do anything possible to morph into whatever expectations I thought people were setting for me. Mm. And that continued all the way up and into college, which is just a really sad tale of events. But so that, that's really the main thing to really say about that is my early childhood was just developing this insecurity where I was never good enough and I had to meet people's expectations. Mm. And, and that worked all until about, you know, second year of, of college when that kind of feeling of insecurity or failure to meet expectations or whatever finally spilled over into the spiritual realm fully. Because again, coming from a family where both sides of the family used the same Bible yeah, and, you know, had the same sincerity, I'll just, I, I guess as hard as I could know, but they taught completely different things. Not all the things were different. There's a lot of similarities, but, y- you know, I, I kind of reached a point where I was like, I have enough problems in my life right now than to sit here and try and figure out who's what, and they both don't seem to be working, and, you know, I can't even meet people's expectations. How am I going to meet God's expectations? Yep. And I really just can't handle that pressure because I'm failing so miserably down here. And and God's probably 20 levels above that. So there's no way I'm handling that. And so I kind of just walked out on faith altogether. Not mm. that I didn't think God, you know, it wasn't like a point where God doesn't exist. I, I pretty much figured he exists, but it's impossible to figure out how to please him. And if he's really a good God, he's going to understand I had to take care of other things in life. And if he doesn't understand that, I wouldn't want him anyway. Yeah. Kind of thing. And I so, get it. And so in the midst of a Christian college, by the way, I went to a Christian college because my mom, again, used that line, we're not paying for it if it's not a Christian college kind of thing. Yep. So you uh, chose free college over college you want. Correct. I mean, free college was the college you wanted. Well, y- yeah. For you, free to you. Yeah, free, free to me. It wasn't to my folks. But that, that, was, kind of, that was kind of the journey. So in the midst of a, even a Christian university, I walked out on Christianity, so to speak, at that point. Yeah. And, and out I went to pursue things in my life still morphing to become anything and everything I thought I needed to be uh, to get people to accept me. Now, obviously, that doesn't work very well, and I never had a successful result. In in fact, you know, I would keep learning the wrong lessons. Every time my lies would collapse in on me or people would discover it or whatever, the lesson I took out of that was not that I shouldn't be lying, making up things, or or morphing into things. And, you know, it, it literally became I didn't do a good enough job at creating the backstories or creating the persona or doing whatever. So yeah. I, I judged myself. The failures were because I failed, not because what I was doing fails. Yeah. It's just a really messed up. <laughs> I listened to myself talk about it. It's just a really messed up place to be in. And so that basically was what I morphed into as a, as a young adult. And, and that all worked until obviously I just tried outside of faith and life wasn't working any better than it had inside of faith. Mm. because the methods don't work whether you're religious or not. They just don't. I mean, I guess some con artists get pretty good at it, but as great as I thought I was, I'll just be honest, I wasn't a very good con. I'm not that good. I'm good. (laughs) I was good at telling lies to some people, but, you know, the problem is, is when you tell so many lies, you don't even know who you are anymore. You trip yourself up all the time. Yeah. And that's literally the sad tale of where I was. By the end of my childhood, by the time I was through a college experience, I didn't know who I was. I really didn't. I had told so many stories and done so many things and gotten caught in so many different things. It just, 
it, it was a disaster. So I, I was fine. I was just miserable. I, I had to admit I was miserable. I wouldn't have admitted that to people, but to myself, yeah. I knew I, I was I was miserable. And and really, where that changed was I was in a job, living in the middle of nowhere. I actually I pursued political science at this at this school because one of my desires I told myself was I wanted to really change the world and impact it. And the two things I knew impacted everybody, whether they wanted it or not, seemed to be religion or government. And well, I'd given up on religion, so let's try government. And so I pursued political science, and I was actually working a political campaign job in the state of Iowa. This was back in like 2007, ahead of something called the Iowa caucuses. So for our American listeners, they'll know that's actually about to come up again yep. in, in a few months' time for another set of presidential elections. But I was working out on a campaign that will remain nameless, but I, I was working on a campaign, and I remember not, two things really changed me being out on this job. One, I was isolated from anything and everything that was familiar because I left the South or New England area where I'd gone to school and I'm in the middle of Iowa, which no offense to anybody that's from Iowa, but where I was was a place called Sioux City. And if you're from Iowa, you're automatically going to know where this is going. The only thing that was really there was a Tyson chicken plant, a processing plant. And when the wind blew the wow. wrong direction... You smelled all of it. Oh, I smelled all of it. The locals had a joke for what they called Sioux City, but I'm not going to repeat it on this podcast. Was it was it Pooh City? <laughs> Basically, using the Sioux. yeah yeah but yeah, anyway, yeah yeah. Now that we've inferenced it, I might as well anyway. Yes, th- no, thank no. You. Now I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah, okay, P- I got yeah, it. Exactly. I'm from Florida. I get it now. Yes, PG-13 now on this podcast. But anyway, so I was completely isolated, and I didn't fit in anywhere because campaign culture, at least at that time, I haven't been in it for some time, campaign culture was you worked 80, 90 hour weeks and then the weekend hit, which you still usually had to, to work, but your off time was you would go get wasted or sleep around with every other campaign staffer that you know you could find because you all had share experiences or whatever and that's how you just wasted away your free time. Well, the problem was I had had just enough religious upbringing that I didn't feel comfortable engaging in that kind of behavior because I still had enough kind of paranoia about God, like, well, the moment you go sleep around or drink or get do whatever, you know, God's going to smite you or something horrible is going to happen that's going to ruin your life. So I, I didn't feel comfortable going all out and enjoying that kind of lifestyle, but I didn't feel like I fit in religious circles either. Like I wasn't going to go mm. to church or go start being really religious or, or whatever. So it's just like, I, I felt like I didn't fit in anywhere. Yeah. And that's just a really sad point to be in. And it was in the midst of this, it was winter uh, of 2007, that I had a friend that I had roomed with at college, MySpace me. Now, if you don't know what MySpace is, that's because you're too young to remember the age where that was cool. MySpace, MySpace predated is still Facebook. cool, okay? Really? No. <laughs> no, it's not. No, no, it's not. Tom is cool. MySpace Tom is doing well for himself. Oh, okay. He sold it for a bunch of money and now just lives as a travel photographer doing whatever the heck he wants. He's well, doing fine. Well, good for him. I'm, I'm glad something good. The only thing I remember about MySpace was that, remember, it, you could put a music track on your page. Yeah, and you and the make big, all, you subject all of your friends listen to whatever you like. Whatever it was, like. over and over and over again. But if you found a page you really liked, you just keep hitting refresh to yes. keep hearing the song. Yes. Anyway, he sent me this MySpace message and was basically asking what I was doing in life and whatnot. And of course, you, you're miserable, but you don't want to tell people that. So you build it all up. I'm doing this job and this thing, and it's awesome, and my life's great, and we have a chance to go to the White House, and it's going to be great, and I'm going to make a difference in the world, and yeah. All right, and you send that back off. And I'm like, what are you doing? You know. And he sent back that he was working for a church organization that had sent him to one of the most atheistic countries in Europe 
that's how he referred to it. So basically a, a, a more non-religious society, uh, a post-communist country. And he was like, hey, I'm doing like this mission work over here, doing something that they called call portering, which is basically you go and try and sell health or religious literature door to door into people's home to kind of make a living, but also sow seeds of truth or however you want to refer to that. And he was talking in this message about all the stuff he was doing. And have you ever read one of those messages where what the person is saying, or if you're in a conversation where they're saying this in person, what they're saying doesn't sound like they should be happy. In fact, it sounds like the complete opposite, but you can tell they're happy and you're not. And that makes you angry. Yes. Well, that was exact. I read that message and that's exactly what it was. I was angry because the, you know, my idea of mission service was being eaten by a cannibal in Africa somewhere or living in a monastery. Like yeah. that was my view of mission service. Like just, that would be a horrible life. And he was out here doing this and he seemed happy. And I was doing all this stuff that was making money and doing it. And I hated my life. And it just mm. really ticked me off. I didn't think it was fair. And at the end of his message of all things, he goes, hey, you should come join me. Which I thought, you know, I think probably laughed out loud. Like that is the dumbest suggestion ever. Like I really will not do that. And all I can say is from that moment forward, it wasn't a literal voice. But it was almost like something in my head kept repeating itself over and over again. You should go to this country. And for the next two months, I couldn't get rid of it. Mm. I don't know why. I tried everything to get rid of it. I tried to drink it away. I tried to work it away. I tried to rock out music and headphones to get rid of it. I mean, I tried anything, and I, and I thought I was literally going crazy because I wasn't sleeping enough or whatever. And it got to the point where I could not get rid of this, this idea, and I just assumed it must be God tormenting me. And so then I came up with the brilliant idea, brilliant in air quotes here. I was going to outsmart God to get him to shut up. So I basically went on one of the earliest versions of online buy plane tickets. Again, this is stuff that's normal for everybody, but back then this was, you know, yeah. still early 2000s. This is 2007. You could go on a website now to buy, look for plane tickets and buy them, but they still had to mail you paper tickets in the mail once you bought them. Mm. It was kind of that transition period. I feel like a caveman talking about this stuff now. But anyway, you know, and and so I was like, For I'm those a, who don't know, Henry is 74 years old. Thank you. Makes You're me welcome. Feel really young and spry. Young and spry. Yes, I'm not 74. He's years been doing old, nothing but, but back handsprings the entire time he's been talking. Thank, he's wearing a lav mic. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you very much. Anyway, thank you. Thank you very much. I used to listen to that guy in the 60s and said, it'll never catch on him and his hip swinging. Anyway, so, <laughs> so. Anyway, I went on and tried to find the cheapest one-way ticket I could find to this country, thinking that if I bought it, then God would shut up. So I didn't even look what the date was on this thing. I just found the cheapest thing possible and bought it. And when it arrived in the mail like three days, four days later, I shoved it in a desk drawer and totally forgot about it. And about a month after that, the Iowa caucuses happened. And our guy was, well, I shouldn't give too many details because people will figure things out and make a lot of judgments about whatever. But basically our candidate, well, I've said a guy now, there was a lot of guys in that campaign. So whatever the guy was supposed to do a lot better. We thought he would do good in Iowa and move on to New Hampshire where he would do even better. And instead like 20 times the amount of people that had ever voted in the Iowa caucuses showed up and they seemed to vote for everybody, but our guy and Yikes. overnight I had no job. Yikes. Because he dropped out. You know, the campaign's over. Yeah. And it's one of those things where that happened, and I thought God had done it to me. One of those weird, twisted things where the whole universe is about you, and you're like, you caused him to lose on purpose to punish me or 
force me to do something I don't want to do or whatever. And I was cleaning out my desk. And as I was cleaning it out, I found the envelope with the paper airplane ticket. And I opened it to look at it again. And the ticket that I had bought was for two days from that day. And so I decided, well, might as well not waste the money. And maybe I need a vacation. Then I'll feel better about life. And so, <laughs> and so I literally remember I packed up everything overnight from the apartment I'd been renting with this other campaign worker, shoved it all into my L200 Saturn that I owned at the time and drove straight back to the, you know, South Carolina where my folks were at the time and moved back into the guest room that had been my room. I'm not bitter at all. And right, you know, I dumped all that stuff there and then started packing and saying, I'm going to take a little vacation and I'm quickly going to go over to, to Europe. And I did. And all I can say is that I ended up in a group of people that were nothing like I'd ever hung out before. They did funny things. They sang funny songs. They ate funny food. They, they, they really, when I, I first met them, I thought they were extremists, literally, because mm. it was just such a weird way to, you know, you're like, oh man, these are cult people because they yeah. just act so weird. Um, but they had a piece about their life I didn't have and that bugged the living daylights out of me. And I'd only gone there intending to stay like a week and, you know, just see Europe and see my friend. And instead, when I told him, I sent a MySpace message like at the last minute, like, hey, I'm coming to see you. He thought that meant I was coming to join their call porter program. And he told all of these people that. And when I showed up at the airport, there was like nine people holding signs with my name, like, welcome. And I'm like, this is overkill. Why is there this welcoming committee? And the welcoming committee, literally, I remember we got into this eight passenger, like Volkswagen bus, one of the yes. like, early 80s yep. ones. And Mystery machine coming at you. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, it was even worse than that because I remember it, it, you almost had to get out and push it up a hill. Even worse, literally anything is worse than the mystery machine. Well, <laughs> the mystery machine is the pinnacle of vehicle and vehicular travel. That's true. Well, let me put it this way. It's probably traveling faster than I am with this story, so I really need to speed it up. And it, anyway, and so I got, they, they put me in this van and we drove to this cabin they'd rented for the weekend for a retreat for team building exercises. And I was like, team building exercises? And they're like, yeah, you're going to, you're being on the team. And I'm like, what? No. Like, I am not going to be on this team. <laughs> and... And I like to say kind of jokingly, I was kidnapped by these people because I can remember, you know, we got to this cabin, got out everything. And I was like, oh, no, oh, no, I'm not joining this thing. I'm not interested in this religious stuff. No, I only came here. You're going to take me back. And they're like, well, we're not going to waste the cabin rental, you know, or whatever. So we're going to be here for the weekend. So I stayed for the weekend and kind of out of lack of anything else to do, kind of went through their activities or whatever. And then they're like, okay, we're going to drive back to the place they were staying. Well, of course, where they were staying was this seminary building for their church that was right, literally, no joke, was on the same hill as a Catholic monastery from like 1100 AD or whatever. So you had to drive up and past the monastery to get there. So I literally thought I was being sent to a monastery, you know, as we're driving wow. up this thing. I was like, what? No, 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 no. And we got there and we unloaded everything. And the next morning, I remember I got up put what few things I took out of my suitcase right back in it, drug it back, threw it in that Volkswagen van and said, take me back to the airport. And the only girl that spoke any sort of English, you know, other than my friend that was there was like, well, we don't have a lot of fuel money. That would be a waste just to make a trip for the airport. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to canvas. That's what they called going to a town and selling all these books. 
we're going to sell in this little community near the main city with the airport uh, today, and you're not going to be dead weight. So they handed me these health magazines and wrote down in the language of this country, like one paragraph on how I was supposed to sell this magazine. And they handed it to me and said, you're going to sell magazines today. And at the end of the day, we'll take you to the airport. And they dumped me off in this post-Soviet city <laughs> in, the, in the dead of winter and handed me this notebook paper with something scribbled out in a language I didn't understand. And like in the vehicle, they tried to go over it to see if I could pronounce it well enough that someone might understand yeah. what I was saying. And they dropped me off with like a sandwich for lunch and like, we'll be back in six hours. All right. And dropped me off. And I remember feeling like such an idiot because I literally, I had come from a job where I was paid to talk to the press and do things and whatever. I was very self-confident, could handle my life. And I was terrified of even a kid speaking to me because I didn't know what they were saying. I didn't know this language. It's yeah. in the winter. It's in a place I don't understand. And I remember literally sitting in a stairwell of one of these Soviet, like former Soviet apartment complexes. Cause it was like, you'd get in the bottom and there was a central stairway and all the little doors were on the inside. And I remember standing there crying for like four or five hours. Like I hated my life and didn't want to be there. And I was good. So, so you had two, one to two hours left to sell a bunch of books. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I, I don't, I don't remember. I think I sold maybe one magazine only because, hey, only because yeah. they felt sorry for me. Probably. That doesn't you know, matter. They just had you to did laugh. And I was so emotionally exhausted that when it was time for pickup and they came back, I remember getting back in the vehicle, getting in the back seat and passing out from exhaustion. And when the leader saw I was passed out, they drove right back to their seminar. Of building. course they did. Exactly. And, and I had to get out and take all my stuff. And then the next day, literally repack it, throw it back in and say, take me to the airport. And they'd say the same thing. Well, we don't have the money for that. We're going to canvas this thing. And they did that for like a week before I figured, okay, they're not going to take me to the airport. Now that sounds really bad. I think they would have if I'd really pushed it. But I finally was like, well, there's no escaping this. I might as well try and figure out why they have such peace. And, and the short of it is, is for the next six months, I ended up reading some religious literature. I ended up hanging around them. And though I can't say that I ever want to really call Porter again in my life, uh, I, I will say that it was really a time where I decided maybe my life was miserable because I didn't have God in it and I needed to get back to God. And that sounds really great, but I think what it was is I thought maybe I should just spend all my time trying to meet God's expectations. Yeah. And that will make me happy. So I, I literally, quote unquote, converted at that point. I remember going to the dean of the seminary they had there and asking that I get baptized and like join the church. Now they were there. And he didn't ask a lot of questions. And I, all I can remember is they, they did. They baptized me in the river that ran right near the seminary building. Of course, this is winter. That was a mistake. And went down into this river, and all I remember wondering was, was it the Holy Spirit coming over me or shock when I went under the water? Because every <laughs> I stopped feeling anything but like little tingles. And it was probably literally my body temperature dropping yeah, at extreme speed. That's exactly what it was. Yeah, but, but you know, I was like, is this the religious experience? I'm feeling the warmth of the Spirit, you know, kind of thing or whatever. And that's how little I really understood yeah. anything. And I joined the church and told myself that I was going to spend the rest of my life doing big things for God, and that would make me happy. Well, you can probably guess that didn't make me happy. And this continued for some time in Europe until I ran into a ministry leader that was quite big within the Seventh-day Adventist communion at, at that time. He was a media ministry guy that will remain nameless for the sake of the story. But he came overseas to Europe to speak at some sort of convention. And by that point, I'd been in this country a while. I could speak a little bit more of the language. And they needed someone to kind of help him around when he was not speaking 
like a translator, someone that knew enough about this language that could go ask for a sandwich or water or something for him Mm -hmm. if he needed it. And the translator that was translating when he preached sermons or whatever had to translate other people when he wasn't. So they were like, well, you're an American. You can speak for this guy. So they kind of tagged me with him. And he got talking to me while I was there. And long story, even longer, he basically was like, hey, I run this evangelism school back in the United States and you should really come study like to be like, in ministry full time, like, cause I guess what I was doing was not ministry full time. And he was like, yeah, you should really like learn all this theology and go kind of like into pastoral ministry and stuff. And well, I was not interested in doing that, but through a series of events, I ended up back in the United States for a short period of time. And I ended up there at the same time that this school was about to run. And I ended up going to this school. Mm. If I give it away, everyone's going to know what it is, yep. but I'll just say it was in Northern California. Sacramento area. And if you can't figure it out by then, fine, whatever. I'll just say that I went there to learn a whole bunch of amazing facts about life and all sorts of other things. (laughs) I quit. Yeah. And I, and I went there and I went to this school and I just knew now I can conquer the world for Jesus. You know, and now I know all this stuff. I know more than the average church member. I'm going to be able to do big things. I'm going to like turn the world upside down like a second reformation and God's going to approve of me. He's going to love me. I'm going to do great things. And then I especially knew that God had great plans for me because when I graduated from this school, I got kind of backdoored into doing like a youth pastor role at an area church that was kind of a big deal. And I was like, look, I'm even getting backdoored into pastoral ministry for this big ministry that happens out here. And God's doing this because I'm going to do great and powerful things or whatever. And I I went on a big ego trip, literally. I thought I was the best thing since sliced bread. But Mm. I still had the same insecurities, and I still was reverting to a lot of the same tactics to deal with those, such as either exaggerating things or making stuff up or doing whatever I thought to be now, in this case, the biggest, baddest, awesomest youth pastor in the world, you know, kind of thing. And the more my success, the more God will be pleased with me. Mm. And that worked for a little while. I thought it worked. Um, Everything was going well in life. I had the job. I had all these friends. I was involved in all these extracurricular church things. And I was going to youth conferences and trying to do more speaking engagements. And the more I got invited to stuff, the more successful I was. And then I got this girlfriend and we got quite serious. And I thought everything was going well until it wasn't. And so basically we got to the point where I literally went and asked this girl's parents to marry her. Uh, We got engaged. We were like, okay, this is going to be great. And we're going to do ministry together. I'm going to have the perfect Christian family and I'm going to do all of these things. And then uh, on a trip that we were coming back from seeing my sister and some family that had come out to California to to visit. And I wanted her to meet my family before we got married and all this. Of course Uh, we were on the way back from this trip And she had been acting weird the whole weekend. And I made the mistake of trying to confront her over why while I'm driving on this long car trip back. And long story short, I kind of got the Dear John conversation where she's like, well, I don't know if I actually love you. And I feel Uh, like you kind of forced me to do all of this. 
and, uh, oh, it was it was a horrible eight hour trip from Southern California. Yikes! That happened what and, five minutes in, and then you had seven hours and fifty five minutes left well, of a drive. Yeah, sort of. It wasn't quite that bad. I think it happened about two hours in because she slept the first like hour and a half or whatever. Because gotta 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 get so some energy. So I had the stress of waiting to have the conversation. Then I have it, and then you're doing everything to like you know you're turning into a puddle of goo, like begging her to please give us another. And chance you're the one and, that's driving. Yes, and I'm the one that's driving, and you're trying not to like wreck and yeah. sobbing, and you don't feel like a man, and you're doing all this stuff. So basically, we broke up. Like she left me. Now, whether that was probably a smart decision on her half or not, that's that's neither here nor there. I probably was not. Well, not probably. I definitely was not marriage material at that point. Looking back, but anyway, I, it devastated my world, and it devastated it even further because within like three weeks of that happening, or at least maybe not even three weeks, maybe a little longer than that, but a, a very you know, I, I, I sank into such depression. I had this fight or flight mode and I decided I just had to get out of there. I was so embarrassed because this would ruin my ministry and it was an expectations yeah. game and the church is going to be like, why is she leaving you? And, and all of these other things, that's not very holy and, and whatever. And so I turned in a notice to leave my job. I was like, I quit. Here's my two weeks notice. Mm. And instead of that church fighting to keep me, and that's not really their fault because I'm sure they were dealing with a lot of other things that the head pastor was kind of like, okay, goodbye. And I took that as Okay, because because when a woman who says she wants to marry you, now all of a sudden's like, I don't, and she ends it, you start wondering, what's intrinsically wrong with me? Yeah. Right? And then on top of that, now I go to the church and say, I'm going to quit, and the church is kind of like, okay, see ya, don't let the door hit you on the way out. And I took that as, okay, the church doesn't even think I'm very valuable. You know, I've been working here for almost two years, and they're just like, okay, bye. You know, see yeah. ya. No, no tears shed. And that was horrible. And about the time I realized I was going to end this job, I said, well, I got to have something to live. I have to pay my bills. And I thought about that the last minute. So I reached out to this independent ministry. What that is is somebody that lives off of donations and it's not run by the church that I knew and some people I knew in it. I said, they had said, if I ever wanted to work for them, let them know because they ran this ministry. I said, okay, I'll go work outside of the church. I work for this ministry for God. And I told them, they're like, yeah, you should come work for us. And so I packed up everything. My two weeks was done, left the church, and I was depressed. I said, but I'm going to go move to this other church. And literally the day before I was supposed to pack everything in the car and go to this place, they give me a phone call, and they're like, uh, Henry, we need to talk. Never a great start to the conversation. Yep. And the conversation basically went, hey, you know, we were praying about it, and God's shown us that you have a pride problem, and so we rescind our job offer. Don't come work for us, because if you do, you're going to get really popular, and then the devil's going to take you out, and he's going to take our ministry out with you, and we can't afford that. Goodbye. Yikes. Now, here's the thing. Did I have a pride problem? Yes. Looking back on it, I did. Uh, did God tell them that? Maybe. I don't know. I wasn't God. I wasn't in those prayers. But... Was that the way probably to tell me? Uh, no. Yeah. And so I interpreted that as God is even going around giving visions or prayer answers to people, telling them to keep me away from his work. So this woman doesn't like me, the church doesn't like me, and God himself doesn't like me. Yeah. Well, that's, if you think all three of those things are true, that's not going to put you in a good mental place. Yeah. So I literally, again, in like two and a half days, drove across the country back over to South Carolina where my parents still were, moved back in the house, dumped all my stuff, and then sank into the darkest, deepest depression I've ever experienced in my life. And it was so dark that I contemplated suicide. Maybe this should be a trigger warning for anyone that is really... Too late. You already said it. It's, it's too late. But 
I was contemplating suicide, but then I felt even bad about that because I had just enough fear from my religious upbringing that I thought if you kill yourself, you're definitely done. You're going to hell forever. Yeah. And because I thought that, I couldn't even bring myself to kill myself because I was like, well, I'm miserable enough now. Why would I want all eternity that miserable? And then I felt even more like a coward that I couldn't kill myself. And it's just a really dark place to be. And it's a cycle. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like yeah. that just traps you in it. Yeah, it just traps you in it. And I was losing weight and I just keep the blinds closed and just lay in my bed 18 hours a day. It's funny, when I'm depressed, and, I gain weight. So this is, this is, we are completely opposite people. Yeah. And yet somehow the same. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're human. This is the human experience. Yeah. Which, 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 by the way, that's a topic for another time. Don't get me started that the church is all fine with people getting help unless it's mental issues. And then they go, just pray about it. Uh, just, I'm, I will say, I'm glad that it seems like we're finally getting out of that. And it seems like that rhetoric tends to come more from misguided members than it does leadership on a kind of it like that's growing more and more to be that way. Yes. And, and I'm so thankful for that because I really needed a lot of mental help at that time in my yeah. life and I didn't get it. Um, but in any case, so I, I sang into this dark depression, you know, your parents are kind of awkwardly like, you should get out of the house. You should do something or whatever, you know, but then, of course, I'm back in my parents' house, so my parents' philosophy was if you're in their house, I'm doing stuff with them on the weekend, like church. So, you know, I'd have to dress up. I'm depressed, wanting to kill myself and hating that I can, and then I'd have to go to church and put on a suit and tie for their particular church and go and act like everything was okay. Mm. And everyone knew I'd gone to this evangelism school, so they'd want you to get up and teach the, the Sabbath school, the Sunday school class kind of thing. You know, get up and do that and preach the sermon when the pastor isn't there. And what are, and you're going through the motions like you just love God and everything's great. And as soon as you're back from church, you're just sunk back into depression and want to die. Mm. You know, and this continued for several months until, in all ironies, my ex fiance had decided to go to a different evangelism school. I don't know what the reasoning was. We weren't talking, obviously, and hadn't for some time. Um, all I'd known about her at this point was a couple months after I went home, I found out she was dating my best friend. Mm. which that didn't put me in a good place either. Mm. And in fact, then she, ended up, and then she ended up marrying my best friend. Wait, but I'm not married. Okay. Well, that was, well, this is my no, former I'm, best friend, <laughs> my former best friend at the time. And what was even weirder was my former best friend took my former job. Are you the what, Wait, the one that you got called, they the called, one that I quit. Oh, okay. The one that you quit. Okay, I turned yeah, in my yeah. two weeks notice and left. He ended up being the next person in that job after me. And then he ended up dating my ex and then they got married. So, so he was, he literally became the you that you were supposed to be at that time. Yeah. Wow. Now what's even more, here's what's really sad about that. that that's another journey for another time. I, I, I've never hated someone as bad as him. I hated him. I heard all that stuff and I was like, you betrayed me. You didn't what's sad though, when I look back on it is all the things that I started not liking about him and I started you know because when you get angry all of a sudden you seem to have this clarity about people's character and I'm like well he's lied to me and he's done this and he's exaggerated this and he's taken advantage of this but I didn't realize he was basically me mm. and so in a really twisted sense I wish I had time to unpack but the way I'm going so slow in the story he, he basically I got burned by myself what I was doing to other people burned me through him mm. uh, and that's an even more depressing thing to realize yeah and so I went through all of this, you know, so I hit the, ooh, I hit the mic stand. I hit, I hit, I went through all of that. I mean, in the midst of this deep, dark depression and I hadn't heard from her. Everything was just horrible. I was like, I hate life. Everything's gone wrong. And in that moment I get an email 
from my ex-fiance. Hadn't heard from her since we broke up. Hadn't done anything. I get this email, and it wasn't one of those emails like to me. It was one of those things she mass sent to everybody in her email list, but I happened to still be in it. So all I knew is I got an email from her. I opened it up quickly like, this will be my salvation. I'm going to find out something or whatever, you know. And what it was was she had sent an audio file from a class she was taking at an evangelism school that she was attending at that point that had meant a lot to her by this teacher she had. She's like, I just wanted to share this with people. And I don't know why, but I was like, I'm just going to listen to it. What else do I have to do? I'm just laying in this bed 18 hours a day. And I listened to it. It was by a guy named Ty Gibson, who I'd never heard of before at this point. And he was, I don't even remember the gist of the, like the great details of this audio recording class. All, all it was, was he was basically talking about how if you were the only person in the world, God would love you. And, and he would do it's something kind of along those lines, yeah. which may not sound very unique, but all I remember is listening to it at that moment in my life. All I remember was getting angry again. Because I didn't understand how this guy could be... He was saying all these rosy, flowery, beautiful-sounding things about God and seemingly doing it from the Bible. And I was like, that's not the God I know, and I've grown up around that book, and I've had two different churches talk to me from that book, and that's not Mm. the picture of God I have. And I said, this guy's got to be lying. There's no way this is true because that's not my experience. And I was kind of angry that somebody would have the nerve to tell people that God was this awesome. And it was in that moment I realized something. In all my years of growing up in church, even after going to an evangelism school run by an entity associated with a church, Mm. even after serving as a youth pastor, I mean, in title, I wasn't employed by, you know, the church, like a denomination, but playing a pastor, I had never actually read the Bible cover to cover for myself. Mm. I had always regurgitated what somebody else told me the Bible said. You took it there, you opened it when a preacher told you to go to something. And you listen to what they said. You listen to what they said, and you regurgitate it. Well, that must be true, because the pastor said it. Yeah. You know, what is the, you know, it's like the old joke, you ask somebody, what, what do you believe? What the pastor preaches. Well, what does the pastor preach? What the Bible teaches. And what does the Bible teach? What the pastor preaches. Um, hmm. y- you know, you just kind of this circular reasoning. And all, that, all of a sudden I realized, actually, you know what? I don't actually know what the book says. I can give you Bible, quote unquote, Bible studies on Tons of different topics, supposedly. To, I mean, I was helping to try and convert people to the faith. Yeah. Telling them what the Bible said. And then I reached this point, I don't know why, in the midst of this darkness where I realized, I don't actually know what it says. Maybe it says what I've been taught, or maybe it doesn't. I don't know. And what do I have to lose? I'm so miserable at this point by finding out. Yeah. But I didn't want to prejudice myself. And I was one of those personalities that I liked to read anyway. And I had a lot of time on my hands. And philosophy was one of my favorite courses in college and, and in life. And the only thing I could remember from college in Philosophy 101 was the three Greek tests of any truth claim. And it was that truth must be based on empirical evidence. It must have a logical consistency among its teachings. So one teaching doesn't contradict the other. And if it is true, truth will be relevant across generations. It wasn't true 800 years ago, but not today. And it's not true today, but not 300 years from now kind of thing. And so that being my standard or whatever I chose in my mind, I said, I'm going to take every religious, major religious text in the world that I can get my hands on, and I'm going to study it and apply only these three truth claims or truth tests or whatever. And I'm going to see if I can figure out if God or religion or anything is true. Cause if it's not, I'm, I'm really done with this journey. I just need to know what I've got to do in life. I'm so sick of this. And so I went out and bought a Quran. I went out and got the writings of Buddha. I went out and got the Upanishads and the Bhaklavita, which I almost said Bhaklavita, which is not how you say that. But basically now well, that you I- combined a 
food in a, a food holy book. With, I am so sorry to any Hindu listeners that we have here. I do not mean to to make fun of your religious text by my lack of being able to pronounce it. Anyway, I went out and got that. Uh, you know, the all, all of these these major religious texts. I even went out and tried to get a book of Mormon. That's a whole other story for another time. I was kind of a little frustrated because they would not give me one. They said they had to come hand deliver it to me at home. And I was like, but I want it now. And they're like, no, 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 we have to we'll send some people to give it to you. And I was like, but what if I die tonight? And they were like, you won't. And I was like, how do you know I'm not going to die? Well, anyway, And now we'll never know if Mormonism was the way you should have gone this entire well, time. Well, I actually managed to get one. I stole it from a hotel in Utah, but that's a different story. Yikes. Yikes. Well, I mean, they had, it like, they had it like in there, like the Gideon Come Bibles, you know? On. They had it in the little drawer, so I took it. So I, I mean, they were going to replace it. Uh-huh, sure. Okay, I just admitted to thievery here, so I guess I can never be in Ramada Inn or whatever I stayed at there in Utah, but... <laughs> Again, so not getting free stand points for life, from them. Henry yeah, they're, they're not. They're not gonna. I'm advertise. honestly, I'm sure that that's exactly what they want you to do. Let's be honest. Yes, I mean that's what I figured those things are there for. But anyway, so I got all of those things, and I said I'm gonna read. I'm gonna leave the Bible for last because I don't want to prejudice myself because I did grow up in Christian community. Yeah. So I, I got a five star notebook. If you remember those, they had like the five yeah, fighters, yeah. and I had an unabridged English dictionary that my dad had had at Georgia Tech in the 70s. I still have it. It's like a big fat blue book, almost a foot thick. You know, mm. and I had that and I had these books and I had a notebook, a five star notebook and a pen. And I said, I'm going to read through all of these. And if I don't understand words or anything, I'm looking it up in the dictionary. I'm not looking it up by asking rabbis or imams or monks or, or anybody or preachers. I don't want to know. I want to see if I just read these at face value. What can I get out of them? Is there truth or is there not? And I read through over the next like five months, I read through all of these things. I just sat there and read. And if I had a question, I wrote it down. If there was something I liked, I wrote it down. If I didn't like it, I wrote it like, this doesn't make any sense. And I, and I just went through it trying to figure it out. And I went through all of them until I, I left the Bible for last. And being fair just up front, um, the two things that really stand out to me about all of those religions is I actually thought Islam was far more interesting than I thought it would be. In fact, it actually reminded me a lot of what I thought the quote-unquote Old Testament or the First Testament in the Bible was. A lot of the same stories, it sounded like to me, just slightly different endings or details. And then Buddhism really spoke to me. So if there's any Buddhists listening, good on you. I mean, not that my endorsement is what matters, but like Buddhism just really spoke to me. Um, I, I just really resonated with yeah. a lot of that stuff. But anyway... So I was probably leaning Buddhist until I finally got to the Bible and I started in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis and I was going to read straight through. And I just remember that by the time I finished what's commonly called the Old Testament, and, and there was some heavy stuff in there. I'm not going to say I understood all of it. And, and there was a lot of points where I'm like, oh, great, God drowns the entire world. You know, what a freak. Or, you know, wow, his people suck because they're like raping and cutting concubines up and stuff. Yeah. I mean, it was just like, you know, I was just like, wow, this is the religious text. But anyway, I read through all of that. And all I can remember thinking is that by the time I got to the end of the First Testament or the commonly called the Old Testament, I remember thinking, you know what? I actually don't think God is who a lot of people think he is. In fact, and the second thing going along with it was, I don't even think he's who religion says he is. Mm -hmm. That's just what I remember thinking. And then I started the New Testament, and by the time I got through the Gospel of John, like I, that's only like if you know how the the canon is kind of constructed at the moment, that's only like four books into the New Testament. 
I remember by the time I was finishing reading John, I came to this third and final shocking conclusion for me was God isn't who the world says he is. In fact, I don't think God is even who religion says he is. I think God is who Jesus is. And that yeah. might be duh, probably to a lot of Christians that are listening, but for whatever reason, and it's probably not even the church's fault or whatever churches I attended, it just for whatever reason, that was the first time in my life that light bulb went off in my head or that mm. made sense to me. And I remember I, I finished reading the New Testament and I said, you know what? I think this is real. I don't know what that means for my life, but I really think that is real. And so I, I said, I just remember it was this weird prayer. I don't know why you always make deals with God, no matter what your faith group is, when you think God is real and something's got, you got to make deals. And so I just remember when I was done, I remember trying to have a prayer and I remember saying two things to, to God. I was like, well, first of all, God, if what I've learned is true, because I was paranoid that when you grow up in more conservative faith communities, you think that anything that doesn't match what you were taught growing up must mean like the devil is tricking yes. you or you're about to go to hell or something like that. So I was yeah. a little nervous because I, that's, I, that's I was like coming standard. to a, Yeah, I was coming to a lot of conclusions that I did not come to when I was a kid or went through evangelism school. And again, I, I want to I want to be clear. It's probably not that it was the evangelism school or these churches I grew up in or even the church people's faults per se. Maybe they contributed to it. That's neither here nor there. It doesn't matter for the story. The point is, in whatever reason, the choices I made or the things my brain space was filled with instead of processing this, this was the first time in my life I processed this. Yeah, in, and in, now in you're going to experience, and this is really standard, you're going to start experiencing the guilt, that the, the confusing guilt, potentially shame, that comes with starting to decouple your current beliefs with what you believed growing up. Yes. And you have to determine like, okay, do I feel bad because this is actually wrong or do I feel bad because it's not what my parents wanted me to have or it's not what I thought it would be. Um, and like everyone starts to deal with that the second they start encountering like just any sort of life behavior or decision that their parents would not have directly endorsed as a right. child. Right. Right. Kid gets your first tattoo, first Whatever. First piercing, whatever, right? That's exactly, yes. Yeah. And so I just remember praying, Lord, if this is really true and I'm not like about to join in league with the evil one or something, then I just asked two things, making deals with him. I said, first, you keep teaching me this stuff because I have a lot of deprogramming to do in my brain. And two, give me something to do, anything. I wasn't specific. Give me something to do to share what I'm learning with other people because I partly felt excited by what I thought I knew and B, I felt duped by the church. I felt like somebody should have told me this a long time ago. And if I can tell anybody, any of this stuff and save them from going through what I just went through because they found it out too late, I want them to know. And I remember it was only within like two months of praying that, that I basically got a job offer like out of the blue. And I really shouldn't have even gotten that job. That's a different story for another time where I basically got invited by, and I'll give them credit for this for the conference organization in the Carolinas in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, they called me in for an interview, which was probably the interview from hell for them because I was just really honest in these interviews because I've come to find out when I, they, they asked me, it was set up, they said, hey, come in and interview because we're looking for some lay people to help out in districts that they don't have pastors or whatever. And I was like, well, that's not really what I'm interested in doing, but it's a job and I did pray to God, so fine. So I went, now note, I didn't have any formal seminary training or anything. That's not yeah. what I went to school for. And so I show up at this interview and all of a sudden I realize very quickly, this is not an interview for some lay job. It's an interview to like to be a pastor. Mm. And so I answered questions like, you know, they gave the standard question. I don't know how your interviews were, but they were kind of like, so why do you feel called to be a pastor? And I answered stuff like, yep. I don't. 
Like, you know, it's like, I yeah. should not have gotten this job, right? And they're but like, that's exactly why you got it. Y- you know, probably. Yeah. You know, ooh, that's, that's probably bad to think about. Um, people that don't need these jobs, get them. Anyway, so, right. You know, I was answering all sorts of questions. They're like, well, what do you think about the ministry of our denomination? Where I was like, well, I think you guys lied to me for most of my life. And I, I was probably saying stuff like that. I don't know how. Well, I do know, my feeling is this had to be a God thing. It could not have been anything else because there's no reason for them to have done this. And basically, by the end of this interview, they sent me out and sat me out for a while. And then the president and the executive secretary and the ministerial director of the conference at that time came out. And I remember them, I remember the ministerial director making this kind of joke. He was like, well, we're about to break nine different conference and union policies, which I thought in my head, well, murders against the commandment. (laughs) Uh, and he was like, well, you know, we really, and, I, and I'll never forget this. And I remember the, the president said, you know, Henry, we really shouldn't do this, but we feel like God has placed a calling on your life and we would be failing mm. in our responsibility if we didn't give you a chance to succeed in it. Mm. I'll never forget that. I mean, there's a lot of things. Other talk about a talk restorative about. call. Well, 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 yeah. And not that I don't have problems with church nowadays, and that's a different topic, but I, I'll always remember, for whatever it was, I, I do believe on my personal faith journey, God used the organized church at that point in, in my life. And they basically extended me a call to pastor two little churches in the middle of nowhere, South Carolina. Wow. And I said yes. And so for the last almost eight, going on nine years, Whatever, that's what I've been doing, some form of formal pastoral ministry. And I've had a lot to learn since then, but I'm I'm just going to say that that moment of reading all those texts and then getting that job put me on a trajectory twofold. One, to keep learning what the book actually says. And B, the more I was learning what the book actually said, the more, as I learned who God was, the more I was actually learning who I was because I Mm. I didn't know who I was. And that was not a easy, quick, pretty journey. In fact, there's a lot of things that I believe or understand now that probably only in the last year and a half or two years have finally clicked for me, and I've been working at it eight years. Um, it's taken a lot of experiences. It's taken a lot of continual rereadings of Scripture. It's taken interaction with other people in faith communities, both inside the denominational structure I'm in and outside of it. Yeah. So people that aren't even in my same faith community, and it's, and it's also taken some bad relationships. And just being really upfront, it's taking a year and a half of actual therapy from a licensed clinical therapist uh, to really dig down deep and understand what my insecurities are, why I have those insecurities, or how I have not coped with them well, Mm. and has led me to do a lot of the crazy things that we talked about even in the beginning of this story, or since. Yeah. You know, because when you spend you know, a good 10 or 15 years exaggerating or lying or making stuff up or morphing your life to fit people's expectations, that doesn't disappear overnight. Yeah. You know, you can't undo 20 years of living a certain way in 20 minutes. Something I what? Wish people would, yeah, I that, that's something I wish people would understand about I mean, faith journeys. You can, and, and just like, it's not healthy. Well, yeah. And it usually, that's like getting baptized with liquid bleach and wondering why all their skin falls off and you yeah, die exactly. of infection. Yeah, exactly, but you change the way they live in 20 minutes. Yeah, and then they die of some infection. Why am I so morbid? No... Someone send help. Yeah, <laughs> send send help. Well, you're the interest to an otherwise really drudging, long, slow story. But no, but that's that's really not at all. But that's well, that that's really where I've that that's really the journey in a very oversized nutshell. 
mm. um, is that, you know, it, 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 you know, I can say the story now and recognize why I did things, but even some of those understandings of what I was doing in academy or as a kid or in college, whatever, I didn't even have those until, as I said, like a year and a half of therapy in the last two years. You know, putting, I mean, I could tell those stories, but I now understand them in a different light. And I think that's another thing for people to understand probably is a good way to start wrapping this up. It's, it's a good way to understand that quote unquote life stories are testimonies. It's okay if your understanding of them begins to morph or the story slightly changes, right? I mean, the story is still, I've had this faith experience and now I'm in faith, obviously, or doing whatever, but like telling the story today is different than I would have told it five years ago, which is different than I would have told it 10 years ago. Because I understand, I think the longer you go, the, the more experiences you have, the more interactions you have, the more you maybe more appropriately understand things or realize what matters and what doesn't. And then every telling you do, even if you do understand it, you may not even emphasize the right parts. Um, you know, I hope it's of some value to, to those who are listening, but that, that was really it. My biggest, my biggest thing was the fear to, of failing to meet expectations. And because of that, I basically became a pyromaniac of the soul as 20th century Jewish rabbi, Abraham J. Heschel would have said, that's a quote from him. If you don't know who that is, look him up. And, <laughs> and, uh, Hey, I read a lot of Jewish literature as well on that, on that. No, journey. you're good. Yeah. And, but that's my thing. I was literally destroying myself in the name of trying to find myself to find, to find happiness. I was destroying the very thing I was after. And it took a lot of different things, but, but I will give credit to my faith journey. For me, it took this faith journey to finally start putting myself back together and not like I didn't have any value before my faith journey. But at least for me, the more I began to correctly understand the God of Scripture, the more I began to correctly understand myself. Yeah. And that's not always pretty because I started realizing, wow, I have a lot of insecurities or wow, that's really dumb things I'm trying to do to make up for those. Right. You know, and, and so you, like I said, you kind of look back on it and share some of these things and like, how could I be so stupid? Like, you know, and I, and I know it cost me along the way. I'm sure I lost a lot of friends and a lot of opportunities and whatever, because I wasn't trustworthy or because, uh, you know, people are like, I mean, you can't trust the guy who's running around with an Australian accent. And he's from Georgia. I mean, you know, it's, you know, these Fair. kinds of things. Uh, but that's kind of the good news of the restorative nature, I believe, of the God of Scripture, is he can use the worst you throw at yourself, and if you let him, he can try and make good out of it. Because here's a great truth that people don't remember anything else on your journey. Become, turning to faith, Christian or otherwise, turning to faith, no matter what major religion you follow, I hope you notice it doesn't take away problems. Everybody suffers kind of pedantic and depressing at the end, but everybody suffers. Everyone goes through problems. Everyone has breakups. Everybody has, has horrible things happen to them in some way or form. It, it, it doesn't remove adversity. I think the main thing, at least for me, that faith has done is it's allowed me to do something constructive from the ashes of my adversity. Mm -hmm. I've been able to take stuff that would have happened probably anyway, but take lessons from them and do something that has made me a better person. Kind of sounds Zen-like, but... Um, to figure out who God is, to figure out who I am, and then be able to relate to other people in better ways. Yeah. Um, in that way. So it's like if you're if you're stuck digging a hole, faith is the shovel where you were using your hands before. Right? Like it's it is a tool that helps you endure the thing that you're having to endure. Um, and gives you a way to carve a path out. And I think that's something that's 
or get to the end of that, whatever that journey is. Right. And, and I think that's really significant. And when you see faith that way, you start to realize that, um, the way you even interact with God changes and the way you can consider him and the way you think about him, everything kind of just is transformed. And I think my biggest question for you then at the end of all of this is what would you say is the biggest difference between how you viewed God then, right? About college, high school, I would say right after, let's go with right after the uh, canvassing experience and this chasing after him and, and thinking that with knowledge and um, correct behavior, um, what, what, what is the biggest difference between how you viewed God then and how you view God and Christianity now? Ooh, the biggest difference, well, obviously, it'd probably be in summarizing it. If I had to really put it in a nutshell, back then, I viewed God as yet another entity or being that set a whole bunch of expectations that were nearly impossible to meet, but my only chance at happiness was meeting them. And if I could just make him happy, then I would be happy. Mm-hmm. And so that became my obsession in whatever specific way I thought at the time I had to do it. Which, in other words, your real God there was your happiness. Because well, the ultimate well, yeah. end, the ultimate end you're serving there is your own happiness. Yeah, God's just really another tool. I'm not trying to, to make God it. happy to make God happy. I'm trying to make God happy because so I, I want to be happy. Suffering, which he's probably yep. causing. Yes. Right. So it, he was just to me back then. God was just higher up the list of a whole host of people or institutions or jobs or anything, society, whatever. He was just further up the list of a whole bunch of expectations I had to struggle day and night to try and meet as my only chance at having a decent life. Mm. And my view of God now is that, first of all, when I am suffering, he is suffering. And that God is a being that is supremely interested in my happiness and my well-being, even at the expense of his own. And that because of that, there is a freedom in that to both begin to learn the meaning of life, but also begin to learn who I really was to start with. To, to kind of, in a sense, rehabilitate me, not into some absolutely, you know, like the typical wording, not rehabilitate me into some totally new creature, but more like strip off all the junk I hung on myself trying to go through life to 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 get back to the bottom, the base of... Yeah, what, you're casting really, off the dead weight. Yeah, I'm throwing. It, it's, it's kind of like to protect yourself in life, you throw on a whole bunch of armor and all this other stuff, and it becomes so heavy and so cumbersome you can't move. And all it is is it's not when the armor's gone, you're a new person. It's just there was the you that was under all this armor, and I'm just taking all this stuff off and now having the freedom to be like, oh, wow, that's what I like. That's what I don't like. That's, that's what brings me joy. That's what doesn't. And here's my unique contribution to humanity and to the earth kind of thing and and finding that it's okay to be all of that yeah basically it's it's a god that is given me a voice again i had Mm. a voice but i was shouting into muffled whatever i was putting over myself yeah now i've i'm being able to learn how to speak as henry again instead of two billion versions of henry that changed every moment of every day or at least speak speak as who henry was supposed to be yeah the whole time yeah. sort of deal. And not necessarily the whole time. I think you're who you're supposed to be now. Yes. And I think all of those experiences kind of add together. And while I think 
I think there was probably a time in your life where you kind of had to go through a bit of a grieving process and a little bit of anger at yourself and at your past self for any sort of sabotage and any sort of any sort of misconceptions you had. And I think you hinted at it when you told me, you know, I, I was I, how could I be so stupid looking yes. back at yourself? And that's exactly that's exactly it. I, I have felt that way so many times. Why was I so stupid? You know, why didn't I just do this instead? And I, yeah, it, it is an entire process that ends up with you where you are. And because of your journey, you are now able to, I think, I think you're able to minister now to people who are very much in that questioning phase and who also are trying to be something they're not. Yeah. You know, for me, my story was one very much of responding to trauma and tragedy and I think yours is responding to the ways we sabotage ourselves mm-hmm. and responding to the, to the kind of, how, how do I want to say this? Um, if mine is responding to tragedy, yours is responding to, ah, nope. Oh, got I, it. I think I think I know where you're going. I'm res- if my story of reacting to my dad's death, my mom's cancer, friends dying, right? All of this, this things, it, it's my story is reacting to external and I yours is reacting to internal. Yes. You were reacting to trauma that was forced upon you and I'm reacting to self-inflicted trauma. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I and, and I think that's powerful. And I think that those two perspectives will color a lot of our conversations moving forward. And I'm really excited to see how it does. Um, I'm excited to see how that kind of, that hints all the way through. And um, I think it's going to be really, um, yeah, I think it's going to be really cool to see how this all plays out as we continue on this podcast. So it, it will be. And I would, I would throw out just as a final thought to, to those that were probably listening, something you said earlier about how we say, how could we be so stupid or whatever? I'm, I'm going to repeat something that my therapist had to tell me a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, when I said, well, why didn't I do therapy 10 years ago? I wish I would have done that and saved my life, all this stuff, you know? And they said two things. One, you weren't ready then. Mm. Or now, sometimes we have to go through things to get to a point where we can get help. Yeah. But the second thing is, is you don't have to feel stupid about the past if you learn from it. It's not a waste if you learn from it. Yeah. It is a waste if you're just like, I was dumb and I'm going to keep doing the same dumb thing over and over and over again and just beat myself up about it. It's not a waste if you do something productive with it, if you learn from it. We're all going to do, quote unquote, dumb things. We're all going to do through disaster. It's what you choose to do with it that makes the difference. Yeah. So just do something positive with it. Hmm. That's powerful. Um, and I couldn't agree more. And I think that's a kind of a great p- place to to wrap this up. And so Henry, I want to say thank you to you for sharing your story. Um, and it is clear to see how your passion is kind of formed through it as well. So thank you for the vulnerability that you've shared in, in opening up with your story as well. And man, I'm just so pumped for the future. Um, it's going to be good. This, this podcast is going to be, is already, it's already good. It's already great. And I'm excited to see what happens with it next. Um, if you want to connect with us, all of our contact info is in the show notes. Um, Thank you guys so much for listening and for journeying us with us through this. We'll see you next time.